Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Abide in Liberty. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. Last week, we talked about and compared the American Revolution with the French Revolution, and I went through a very, very brief outline of the history of the founding of our country, including the Revolutionary War, but we really just kind of brushed over it very briefly. Today, I want to talk a little bit more about the Revolutionary War, but in particular, I want to focus in on George Washington and what we can learn about dealing with opposition from how he handled the Revolutionary War. We may not be called upon to lead out in a an actual war with guns and cannons like George Washington was, but we have been asked to lead out as leaders in the battle between good and evil in our day. And many of us take charge and, and perform those leadership functions in our home. So there's a whole lot that we can learn from George Washington's grim determination to to fight and push his way through the battles that he had to deal with during his tenure as general of the Continental Army. To start this, we've got to go back about a year before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which was, as we all know, July 4th, 1776. About a year before that is when General Washington was enlisted or tasked with leading the Continental Army as the British have come in and blockaded Boston. So just before this, the British had come in and attacked Lexington and Concord. It was kind of a mixed outcome. There were many Americans that were killed, but ultimately the Americans succeeded in driving them back to Boston. The British hold up there, place Boston under British occupation, and this is where George Washington comes onto the stage. And he finds that he has been given a rather ill-equipped ragtag army to deal with. These were farmers and craftsmen, normal people with no military training or background whatsoever. Many of them were quite poor and came with very little clothing. Some came without weapons. And it was his job to try and create and, and bring these different people from different colonies under a single banner and unite them into a cohesive army. And it was not an easy task by any stretch of the imagination. As he headed into winter, he tasked a man named Henry Knox to go and capture Fort Ticonderoga and capture all the cannon that that fort had because he needed it in order to be able to do anything about Boston. The British were holed up there, their fortifications were too strong, and he didn't have the artillery that he needed to make any kind of a dent on the British fortification. So he sent Henry Knox off on this harebrained scheme to go capture all this uh, this artillery and cannon from Fort Ticonderoga, and it worked. He shows up in the area around Boston in early 1776. They bombard Boston. The British realize that every single one of their soldiers in Boston, as well as all the ships in the harbor, are under the are within range of these guns that George Washington had miraculously acquired, and they decide to leave. The British decide that the next best place for them to go is New York, and Washington guessed that they would go there. 
So he takes his army, marches up into New York, and does his best to fortify New York and Long Island against the impending British invasion. Just before the British arrived to invade New York, this is about the same time that Congress met in Philadelphia to uh, sign and ratify the Declaration of Independence. So at this point, um, and actually just before the British arrived, George Washington read the Declaration of Independence or had the Declaration of Independence read to his men. And this was also about the same time that Congress decided we need some kind of a government to tie all the states together. Before this time, there was no federal constitution or federal official anything they were all just 13 separate colonies. So Congress came together and formed what were called the Articles of Confederation. And these, as time would prove, ended up being fairly weak. It was meant to direct and and guide how the colonies worked together during this period of war. Um, But it lacked an executive. There was no single unifying force or unifying voice. There was no way, and because it didn't have an executive, there was no way for Congress to enforce its decrees. And along with that, they didn't have the power to tax. Now, they might tell the states, hey, we need you to pitch in this much money to help in the war effort, but there was no way to compel the states to do that. It was completely left up to the state's own good heart to to pitch in and help fund the war effort. And there were some other issues with the the Articles of Confederation, but these are the ones that um, George Washington ended up having to deal with, as we'll see here very soon. The British, when they show up with their ships and Washington with no navy of his own at all, quickly was overrun by the British. In particular, Washington had fortified Long Island. This is the first island that the British attacked, and they completely routed the Americans. The Americans retreated to the shore. They camped. The British had encircled them. And George Washington, in a desperate attempt to save his army, lit campfires and had a few of his men stay at the front line to make it look like there was an entire army there. And their job was to keep these fires going and to make it sound like there was a whole army going down for the night. And in the meantime, George Washington was evacuating his army across the channel over onto Manhattan Island. And this this was an incredibly risky move. They had to do this in complete silence. Fortunately, It was a very dark night, and they were able to get many of their men across, but they ran out of time. The sun was starting to come up, and Washington knew that in a matter of minutes, the British were going to see him, and then it would all be lost. They'd be caught, the rest of his army would be destroyed, and he was just sick at heart when all of a sudden, this thick fog came rolling in that completely obscured the vision of the British and allowed General Washington to evacuate the rest of his army across to Manhattan Island. After this evacuation from Long Island over to Manhattan, Washington, over the next few months, just suffered defeat after defeat after defeat. And he was in an almost constant state of retreat from then up until the end of the year when eventually he arrived on the banks of the Delaware River just across from Trenton, New Jersey. Now, things were desperate. At this time, the enlistment of these, of most of his soldiers, of a large chunk of his army, were about to be out at the end of 1776. His army was completely demoralized over this several months of retreat. The victory at Boston had long worn off by this point, and they were just bedraggled. They were freezing. Many didn't have enough 
clothing to keep them warm. They were hungry and were just counting down the days until they could leave. And Washington desperately wanted them to stay on, to re-enlist, and he knew he needed to do something dramatic in order to rebuild everybody's morale. So shortly before Christmas, a pamphlet was published by Thomas Paine, and these words inspired them to trust George Washington with this crazy idea that he had come up with to cross the Delaware River and attack Trenton, New Jersey. As the night set on, a blizzard rolled in. It was miserable. It was freezing. The conditions were terrible. There was major concern of the winds capsizing and dumping these poor shivering soldiers into the icy waters. But they tried it anyways. They got across um, on Christmas morning, and they end up marching, many of them barefoot and leaving bloody footprints in the snow to attack Trenton, New Jersey. And this is this one of these iconic stories of the American Revolution where these bedraggled soldiers fight and defeat the most feared fighting force in the world at this time, these Hessian German soldiers, and defeated them. Now, it helped that these soldiers had been up drinking the night before celebrating Christmas. And so this surprise attack, they they knew the state that the American soldiers were in. And the farthest thing from their mind on this Christmas Eve was that these Americans would be crazy enough to cross this river in a blizzard and launch a surprise attack on this just brutal army. Well, they did, and they won. And this was a huge victory. The Americans very quickly, though, when the British found out what was going on from Princeton and sent an army down, they were in trouble. They weren't equipped to fight this army. So they, George Washington employed his tactic of pretending to camp for the night while at the same time he was leading and guiding his army the long way around the British. And in fact, he got beyond them, marched north to Princeton, which is the town that the British had just left, and took Princeton. So two major victories right before the end of 1776. And this, when the country caught word of this, it rejuvenated them to continue the fight. And when word of this reached uh, England, the British were just mortified and couldn't believe that these American upstarts had managed to pull this off. And all of a sudden, the British started to think, maybe there's something to these. (laughs) Maybe this isn't going to be as easy as we thought it would be. Washington ended up settling down in Morristown. You know, there was quite a bit of sickness there, but his victory at Trenton brought many new recruits. And from here to the end of the war, I'm not going to go through and give a play-by-play of these battles. It's, that's just, we don't have time to do that here. But I want to just, between this time, early 1777, and the end of the major engagements of the Revolutionary War in 1781, there are some really kind of disheartening events throughout this entire period. Um, Valley Forge, this kind of happened at the end of 1777. This is where they bunked down for the winter. And this is where we hear these terrible stories of these lice-infected soldiers starving to death in tatters. Um, It wasn't actually a particularly cold winter. It was fairly mild compared to the rest. But it was really, really cold if you didn't really have anything to wear and if you didn't have enough to eat. Now, this was not because the Americas were suffering from any kind of famine or shortages. The people who lived in the countryside, actually, many of them were very comfortable that winter and very well fed. The problem here was a political one. 
And this is where the Articles of Confederation, the weaknesses of these Articles of Confederation reared their ugly head. Congress was notifying states of the amounts of money they were supposed to pay in order to support the war effort. And many of the states, for one reason or another, just didn't pay. Some of them did pay. Those who did maybe didn't pay all of it. And so they suffered from, and these soldiers suffered and died without enough food, without enough clothing, while the rest of the country around them had plenty to eat. It was really just a terrible ordeal. And for Washington, who knew that this was going on, knew that that this was simply the ineptitude of the Articles of Confederation. This just chafed him. He was the one that had watched these soldiers die, and he knew that there was no real good reason why that was necessary. There was another uh, winter a couple years later at Morristown, New Jersey, that was even worse than Valley Forge, and it was caused by all the same reasons. During this time, there were several battles, and in some of them, the Americans won or at least didn't lose really bad. Many of these found George Washington out among retreating soldiers with his sword, just whipping these soldiers, trying to get them to turn around and face the enemy. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Overall, though, George Washington lost more battles than he won. This was not a guy who was a particularly good general as far as skill and as far as training. The British generals and the British soldiers, they were professional. This is what they'd spent their careers doing. George Washington had had some experience during the French and Indian War, but as historians look back at that time, it's not clear that he was the best general in the world at the time. Far from it. He became incredibly popular after the French and Indian War, but he was not the most skilled general by a long shot. During this time, he also had to deal with generals who were even less skilled and outright incompetent. In one case, one of his soldiers turned tail and fled, and he... (laughs) He rode his horse so fast that he didn't stop for something like 30 or 40 miles. All the while, George Washington Washington's trying to get control of his army that he had abandoned and get them back, um, back in the game. One of his most trusted generals, Benedict Arnold, betrayed him. And General Gates, who was supposed to be under his command almost throughout the entire Revolutionary War, was trying to undermine George Washington to Congress so that Congress would place him at the head of the army. He thought he could do a better job than George Washington, despite several uh, pretty appalling examples that would indicate otherwise. George Washington knew about those betrayals. He caught wind and got copies of some of those letters that General Gates was writing. So during all of this, when he's suffering defeat after defeat. He is under-equipped, underfunded, watching his soldiers die of starvation, of sickness and exposure to the cold. He's also having to deal with incompetent leaders and people who are actively trying to undermine him and place the blame of how terrible things are going on his shoulders instead of where it should have belonged on the ineptitude of the Articles of Confederation. So this was... (laughs) Just an incredibly trying time for this man. Now, it ends well. Um, During this period, the French sign on to come help the Americans win the Revolutionary War. Despite that, 
he was constantly trying to get the French to help him in specific plans that he had. And they kind of viewed him as kind of, yeah, you're cute. Um, you want to, you think you're one of our, uh, a big soldier boy like the rest of us. So they kind of tolerated him and were respectful to his face, but often ignored his requests. Well, in one particular case, toward the end of the war, he really wanted to retake New York. It was kind of the biggest black spot in his mind on his career during the Revolutionary War that he had been so soundly beaten at New York. So he starts hatching this plan to go retake it. And he enlists and asks the French to help him do that. And they tell him, yeah, we'll help you do that. In the meantime, they had really no plan of helping him at all. They wanted to stay near the Chesapeake Bay around Yorktown um, and invited some of their other ships to come up from the West Indies to help them. So they, they just completely ignored him and lied to him and said, yeah, we'll help you. Yeah, no, we're not doing that. Washington learned a, a couple key things that happened all at once. General Cornwallis uh, ended up arriving in Yorktown. He caught wind and got copies of um, some letters that the French had been sending. So he learned that they weren't planning on uh, helping him take New York at all, but we're going to stay around the Chesapeake Bay, around Yorktown, right where General Cornwallis was. He learned that the French were going to be coming into that bay soon, coming up from the West Indies. He learned that the he received intel that the New York fortifications were too strong. He couldn't he couldn't successfully attack those. And at the same time, uh, he learned that the British had intercepted some of these French letters saying that the attack was going to be happening in New York. So the British thought that the attack was going to New York. So they weren't particularly worried about Yorktown. Now, how did George Washington know all this? That's a completely other story. There's a great book, and I'm trying to remember what it's called, about George Washington spying. So he he put together an incredibly complex and successful spy network during the American Revolution in the midst of dealing with everything that he was dealing with. Anyway, so that that's kind of where he learned all of this. And he saw an incredible opportunity to trap General Cornwallis in Yorktown. And it the timing worked out perfectly, almost like it was meant to be. The French came in and bottled up the harbor at the same time that he uh, arrived after a very quick march down to Yorktown. Cornwallis was trapped. At one point, seven days into the fighting, he tried to escape, but this storm came out of nowhere and blew the boats back onto the um, onto the Yorktown shore. And even Cornwallis was led to speculate that, you know, it seems like even God is with George Washington here. I don't think he realized how right he was. And the end result of this is that the British surrender. And it wasn't immediately obvious uh, to the Americans that this was the end of the war, but this is the defeat that took the wind out of Great Britain's sails. Great Britain had no desire to continue perpetuating this war, and it would take another couple of years before the Treaty of Paris was signed and the, the hostilities officially came to an end, and there were other minor skirmishes, but this was, this was the end. And I'm reminded of a prophecy in 1 Nephi chapter 13. This is Nephi. He had gone to ask the Lord the meaning of his father's vision of the tree of life, and he got way more than he bargained for. But this is one of the things that he said. It said, it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity. So these are the people who had left, and it's talking about the people who had left Europe uh, to come to the Americas, did humble themselves before the Lord, and the power of the Lord was with them. And I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and upon the land also. 
to battle against them. So they're mother Gentiles, where they came from, right? The mother country, Great Britain, was gathered together to battle against them. And I beheld that the power of God was with them, and also that the wrath of God was upon all those that were gathered together against them to battle. And I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. Now, I'm sure George Washington would have loved to have had (laughs) this during his struggle, right? I mean, this is kind of the ultimate spoiler for the Revolutionary War. At the time he was going through this, he couldn't have possibly foreseen the outcome for certain. Turns out Cornwallis was right, though. Now, during this entire ordeal, you kind of have to wonder what was going through George Washington's mind. He knew that he was going up against the most powerful nation in the world, the most powerful army that the world had ever seen. And yet, he knew somehow that this was winnable, that this was possible. His perseverance during all of these hardships and despite what seemed being given an impossible task was simply incredible. And he couldn't have done it without divine aid. He was doing God's work. Now, that doesn't mean that it was going to be easy. In this case, it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. And in many times, it felt like the opposition was overwhelming, both from the British, but also from internal struggles. The cards were constantly stacked against him. Doing God's work did not make this easier, but it did make it possible. Each of us, and the lesson that I hope we get from this, this is the lesson that I get from watching George Washington's struggles throughout the Revolutionary War, is that we all have been given a special mission that God wants us to accomplish. And the fact that he wants us to accomplish it does not mean that we won't face struggles. It does not mean that we won't face opposition. That doesn't mean that we won't apparently lose more than we win, but it does mean that God will be with us to sustain us and help us help see us through to victory in the end. One of my favorite books on the American Revolution and the founding of this nation is called The Making of America by Cleon Skousen. And in talking about the events leading up to the Battle of Yorktown and the Americans' victory over the British, he said, monumental victory comes close on the heels of what might have been a colossal defeat. And I have certainly noticed that in my life. Sometimes when things seem the darkest is when God's preparing his greatest miracles. So if you find yourself in a struggle like this, you are trying to follow God's plan for your life and you just feel like there is something fighting against you, take heart in knowing that there probably is something fighting against you. There is opposition. There is someone out there who wants you to fail. And the only way you fail, the only way that Washington could have failed is if he had given up and had stopped trying, had let the defeats overwhelm him, silence him, and shut him up. And he didn't. He kept pushing through. And it's my hope that we can do the same as we each seek to fulfill our own missions. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at abideinliberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting libertyyouthacademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, 
and be strong.